It really is amazing to me how much of Jesus' life we don't know anything about. It's true. If you think about what we know concerning Jesus, I mean, what we know from Scripture with concrete certitude, we don't know a lot. We have some documentation concerning Jesus' birth. We have one story describing Jesus at the age of 12. Other than that, the first 30 years of Jesus' earthly existence is rather unknowable. The main source of our data, as you know, is the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which focus almost exclusively on a three-year ministry, a three-year period of time of Jesus' earthly ministry that occurred somewhere, scholars believe, to be between Jesus' 30th birthday and his 33th birthday. But even then, it's shocking. To me, it was shocking in my own study this week how little of Jesus' three-year ministry we have recorded for our consumption. Do you realize that of the three-year ministry of Jesus, we actually only have one month of actual days recorded in the Gospels? A lot of the Gospels duplicate stories, so it takes out some of them. If you were to whittle it all, that 30 days of ministry, that's all we have. That's all we have. Leaving two years and 11 months of Jesus' earthly ministry just as mysterious as the 28 years that came before it. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not to say that Jesus wasn't active, that Jesus worked once a month and took some time off. According to John chapter 20, verse 30, it's clear that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So we know Jesus was active, though we don't have all of his activities recorded. But I am left considering this fact, or this question. Why only provide 30 days of Jesus' ministry? I mean, the most interesting man, the most revolutionary character, the most world-altering individual we've ever seen, we only have 30, why only 30 days of Jesus' life? Now, maybe it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that the things included in the gospel narrative, these 30 days, have been hand-selected by the Holy Spirit for the reason of revealing to us the purpose of Jesus. The Bible provides us and tells us that it is the complete revelation of Jesus Christ. So we can rest assured that there's no stories left out that are really, really super important to understanding Jesus. Nothing more is needed than what we've already been given. But this also tells me something important. Because every story we have in the Gospels is hand-selected by the Holy Spirit. These 30 days that make up the gospel narrative, these 30 days of Jesus' life, the only 30 days that we have to our fingertips, demand my study and my focus and my attention. Now, as we established last week, Jesus' ministry has moved from phase one, year one, the period of obscurity, to phase two, or year two, his period of popularity. However, the seeds of the third phase or the third year, the period of opposition, have already been sown. A plan to murder Jesus 
has been hatched through the unlikely alliance of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And the only thing holding these men back from their dastardly plans was the popularity that Jesus had with the population at large. As long as the population had Jesus' back and rallied around his support, the religious and the political establishment dare not try to arrest or seize Jesus. It would be their own suicide. Jesus was popular, and because of his popularity, he in some ways enjoyed a bit of protection. Now, in order to rid themselves of Jesus, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the enemies of Christ, they would have to first erode his popularity. And to accomplish this, they would focus on launching a smear campaign of lies in the attempts of discrediting his ministry to the greater population, Mark records their attempts. Verse 20 of chapter 3. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He is or has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. Now let's start with our scene of activity. Jesus has selected 12 disciples from amongst the multitudes, these great crowds that followed him. After providing us the names of these 12 characters, Mark tells us that they all went into a house. It's hard to say with any certainty where Jesus is or even what house he entered, but Mark continues here in the verses we just looked at by providing us two bits of information that set a very important scene for us this morning. First, the multitude came together again. Mark's telling us that whatever house this was, a great large crowd gathered. The second bit of information that's important for us, Mark continues to say that they could not so much as eat bread. Now, what, what does that mean? First, we have coming to Jesus a great crowd. It's a big multitude. The place is packed. The venue now is so overcrowded that it is impossible for people to access basic amenities. That's what Mark is saying. These guys, they went into a house, a great crowd uh, gathered. The crowd was so large, the venue so overcrowded, the fire marshal couldn't even shut them down if he wanted to, that basic amenities such as food, like bread, was unaccessible to the people. And it would be an overcrowded venue and a hungry group of people that would make for a dangerous situation that the enemies of Jesus would use for their advantage. Mark tells us that when his own people heard about this, they heard the dynamics at play. What did they do? They went out to lay hold of him. Now, don't forget Mark is writing to a slave world within the Roman Empire. His audience is made up mainly of Gentiles or non-Hebrew people. By describing the opposition of Jesus as being from his own people, he's not saying that it was the 12 disciples or part of his own entourage that was trying to lay hold of him. By saying his own people, Mark is simply stating that the enemies of Jesus, and he's stating this to a large Gentile crowd scattered throughout the Roman Empire. He's saying that Jesus, his enemies, were the Jews. 
And he does this so his audience doesn't think that this might have been an act of aggression brought about by the Romans. That could have been inflammatory. Now, the attack ads that the enemies of Christ used to try to discredit him to the population at large began. The first attack ad we see here is that Jesus was out of his mind. That's what they said. He's out of his mind. It's another way of saying, and some of your translations might even have the phrase translated, that Jesus was besides himself. Beside himself. The accusation is that Jesus was mentally unstable that he was insane. More specifically, they accused him of being schizophrenic. To be out of your mind or to be beside yourself indicates that there are two of you acting as one. Think about it. You besides yourself. So you beside yourself. The idea is that Jesus had lost it, that Jesus had become a wingnut, that he had lost the basis of reality. Now, those who were opposed to Jesus, you should note they were educated, they were powerful, and they were determined to destroy Jesus. They weren't crazy. And this attack was well-crafted and thought out. Sometimes we say, oh, well, that's easy to say Jesus was schizophrenic or say Jesus was insane or say Jesus was nuts. But this was a pretty brilliant attack. It's been said, the best lie is one that contains a little bit of truth to make it believable. And oh, don't we know during this political season. I'm sure that the enemies of Christ probably even hired Frank Luntz and Dick Morris to run some focus group testing on their ad's effectiveness to see if it would land, if it would settle with the people. And they concluded that the attack that Jesus was nuts was going to do well within this mob of people. And it was effective for two reasons. One, the timing was perfect. Jesus had just picked out 12 men to fill a position from a multitude of people who had turned in applications. There was no doubt that there was a jealousy component at play among the mob of people, the mob supporting Jesus, who hadn't been chosen by Jesus, that might have felt overlooked. The second thing is that Jesus had actually just done something insane. I mean, that's why the attack that Jesus has lost his mind settled well within the mob because Jesus had done something crazy. If you hadn't been chosen by Jesus to be one of the 12, you would naturally think, it would only be natural, that you would consider yourself more qualified than the 12 Jesus had chosen. But the irony is that you would probably be correct in your assessment. Most of the people following Jesus were probably better qualified for the role of disciple than the 12 Jesus had landed on. People are sitting back and they're thinking, wait a second, Jesus chose those 12 from this big pool he could have picked from? He chose men that were uneducated. He chose men that were not religious. He chose men that were sinners. He chose men that were outcasts. He chose these 12 men to be his inner circle. The population thought Jesus had lost it because the action of Jesus choosing those 12 people would have communicated such. It's true. 
The people Jesus chose to follow him, the people Jesus chose to train, the people Jesus chose to work in and chose to later work through were not the people anyone in the world would have chosen. Jesus' choice was insane. But you know what? His choice to choose me was also insane. You can't sugarcoat it. Choosing the 12, it was a little nuts. Now, the second attack ad was that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebub. So first they tried to float the idea that Jesus has lost his mind. He's schizophrenic. You shouldn't follow him. We, we should arrest him. Then they also float the second attack ad that Jesus had been possessed by Beelzebub. Now, it's very difficult to trace the origins of the word Beelzebub. Even in my own study, it's kind of convoluted. It's kind of difficult to pinpoint with certainty what's meant by that particular word. So I'm not going to bore you with all that. We can tell, or at least easily conclude from the context of our passage, that the religious leaders were accusing Jesus of being possessed by Satan. That's what they were describing through Beelzebub. And this attack, as well, was thought out and well-crafted. Though they couldn't deny the existence of Jesus' supernatural power, they could attempt to spin his supernatural power into a negative by claiming his power came from Satan and not from God. Sure, Jesus was casting out demons. I mean, they couldn't deny that. The people had seen it for themselves. But... Jesus was doing this under the power and the authority of Satan. These guys were the original spin doctors. Which leads me to an interesting observation. Mark tells us that this second attack ad was crafted by the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. I don't know if you noticed that. And it's interesting to me that it was the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem that floated this second attack. Earlier in our story, earlier in the gospel narrative here in Mark, we were told that it was these same men who had come down from Jerusalem to Galilee to observe the ministry of Jesus for themselves. Scripture tells us that Jesus had taught and the scribes had been present. So they had witnessed his teaching and they had witnessed his miraculous power. In Mark chapter 2, we're told that the scribes were present on the day that the paralytic man was lowered, you know, uh, down into Peter's home from the roof. And Jesus not only forgave the man's sins, but then proceeded to heal him of his paralysis. The scribes had a front row seat to that particular exchange. It seems as experts in the Old Testament... These scribes, upon seeing what Jesus did and hearing what Jesus said, returned to Jerusalem with the purpose of deciphering these things. They want to get down to the bottom of it from a biblical standpoint. They wanted to reach a consensus as to who Jesus actually was. Don't forget, in Mark 2, Jesus actually had claimed to be God. And what conclusion did they return from their quest to share with the people? They returned to say that after studying scripture to figure out what Jesus was and what he was doing, their conclusion is that Jesus was possessed by Satan. Therefore, he had been given the power of Satan 
to perform all of the miracles that they were witnessing. I mean, really think about it. I have to ask, how do you witness an awesome miracle performed by Jesus? And then search over scripture to try to find an explanation and then reach the conclusion that the Son of God, that the Messiah, is possessed by Beelzebub. How do you do that? How do you see God's working in such a powerful and tangible and real and obvious and undeniable way? Go and actually search out the scriptures and come back with the conclusion that what you're seeing, all of this good stuff has to be Satan. That blows my mind that the scribes could do this. So why and how? I'm a firm believer that an honest and objective quest for truth will always result in the discovery of truth. Let me repeat that. I'm a firm believer that an honest and objective quest for truth will always result in the discovery of truth. But herein lies a fundamental problem. Sometimes people really aren't on an honest and objective quest for truth. They might claim that they are, but in actuality, they're approaching things with their own preconceived prejudices. And this is where we find a problem. There's always one of two results to every situation. One, we can either see a situation for what that situation actually is, thus discovering the truth, or, and we see this all the time, we can see a situation for what we want it to be. We want a justification of our own prejudices. We can either desire to really see the truth, or we can desire to simply see what we want to see. And both are attainable. You see, if a person allows their preconceived prejudices to taint their quest for truth concerning Jesus, they end up arriving, sadly, not at the truth, but with more validity to their own preconceived prejudices. These scribes didn't want to accept the Messiahship of Jesus. They didn't want to accept that he was God in the flesh. They didn't want to accept that he had more authority than them. They didn't want to accept that he was coming to do something different. They didn't want to accept that they would then become irrelevant. They didn't want to accept Jesus. That, they were determined. So they saw what they saw, they heard what they heard, and then they went to find Proof, not of what the truth was, but more validity to what their preconceived notions were. For a multitude of reasons, these scribes had no interest in an honest examination of Jesus. In the end, they only reached their wrong conclusions in a wrong way, and they looked rather foolish in their assessment. I, if you want to run from Jesus, you can find a whole list of reasons to do so. If you are adamant that you want to be the God of your own life, the master of your own ship, that you don't want to be accountable to anyone, yet alone a higher power, then guess what? You can find justification to support your prejudice. But here's the deal. If you honestly want to know the truth, and you're not sure Jesus is the truth or not, but you want to know the truth, then you'll find it. This student in my Bible class this week, good kid, not a Christian, but a good kid. 
And we had this conversation because I had the students write a paper this week that said, first, am I a Christian? Yes or no? And then explain why. Most of the time you find that people will say, yes, I'm a Christian. And their explanation for why they're a Christian is stupid. Like it's completely ridiculous and unfounded. And it's like, you think you're a Christian, but by that explanation, you're just a moron. Then you get kids that'll say, no, I'm not a Christian. And then they'll give this whole big reason why they're not. Also, that's pretty ridiculous. But I had a student this week that he said no. And then he wrote a long paper explaining that he was a skeptic, that he needed proof, that he wanted questions answered, and that no one would ever take the time to address them. And I asked him if he'd stay after class, and I said, I want you to know I have more respect for this piece of paper and what you just wrote than the majority of those who, yes, I'm a Christian, and let me give you the stupid reasons why I think I am. Because here's the deal, son. If you really want to know the truth, God never tells us we, we can't be skeptics. He doesn't tell us that we can't have answers, that we can't seek for answers, but it's about a heart. Do we really want to know the truth? And I told him, I said, if you want to know the truth, then you go and you write a list of several questions that you need answers for. And over the rest of the semester, when we have time, I'm going to sit down and start answering your questions. Guys, the scribes, they saw what Jesus did. They heard what he said. And then they go back and they reach the conclusion that he's possessed by Satan. Unbelievable. So Jesus called them to himself, verse 23, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Jesus provides here his rebuttal. First, this notion that he was performing these miracles under the power and authority of Satan, their logic, it was, their logic was self-contradicting. If Satan had imparted Satan to Jesus, then why was Jesus using his power to defeat Satan? That, I mean, that's his point. He's like, your logic is contradicting. It didn't make sense. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand and has an end. Their argument violated the law of self-contradiction. Why would Satan give power to a man who is casting out demons and liberating people from his influence? Could these scribes really point to any of Jesus' activities and truly say that it furthered the cause of Satan? I don't think they could. You see, their argument didn't pass the sniff test. It was clever, but it was fundamentally flawed. Their second problem, Jesus brings this up in his rebuttal, is that their reasoning was self-defeating. Their logic was self-contradicting. Their reasoning was self-defeating. In order to make their argument, isn't it interesting that they first had to concede the fact that Jesus possessed supernatural power? Do you realize that Jesus possessing supernatural power was not a debated issue? 
from those that followed Jesus or even those that meant for his destruction, that his supernatural ability to transform lives was never in question by the enemies of Jesus when Jesus was alive. You see, their accusation, it was self-defeating. You see, Jesus possessing supernatural power was a reality they couldn't skirt. Jesus was using his power, and it was obvious to combat the forces of evil. It didn't make logical sense for the origin of his power to come from Satan. So the question is, if it didn't come from Satan, where did it come from? And the obvious answer is it would be the enemy of Satan. It would be God. Their flawed argument self-destructed. Without realizing it, their argument was actually an affirmation that Jesus' power had come from God. And he says this. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house, speaking of Satan, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, which means that he would have to be more powerful than the strong man. You know, most questions actually refute themselves. It's just the truth. And Jesus is pointing out their flaws. Let me give you an observation. Though Jesus, and I find this fascinating, though Jesus provides a rebuttal on the second attack focused on the origin of his power and authority, I want you to notice something that you probably overlooked. There were two attack ads, right? One, Jesus is insane. The other, he's possessed. Jesus addresses this second attack the one of the origin of his power. But notice, Jesus doesn't address the first attack focused on his sanity. He deals with the issue of his possession, but he doesn't address the first attack. To me, it's interesting, and in many ways revealing, that Jesus will defend an attack against his character, but he doesn't seem to care to defend his actions. Don't forget, they thought he was insane. Why? He had picked those 12 to be the core of his followers. And in some ways, the act was insane, which made the attack all the more relevant. And Jesus doesn't address it whatsoever. He doesn't defend his actions in this situation. And why is this? First, I've discovered in my short life that Jesus rarely explains his actions. (laughs) Have you ever found that out? Have you ever sat back and, 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 Jesus, why are you doing this? Why are you working in my life like this? Why is this a trial I have to face? Why is, why is this situation here? What is going on, Jesus? Why? We like to say why a lot. And I don't know if you're like me, but in those moments where I'm asking Jesus a lot of why you chose to do this, I very rarely ever get a response. I very rarely ever get a why. Jesus had picked out 12 men to be his disciples. Those present might have considered these choices insane, but Jesus had his reasons and didn't feel inclined to share them with the population who questioned him. From my personal experiences, it's consistent that Jesus won't take the bait to provide a reason why he chooses to act in a way that people often can't understand. There are times in my life when Jesus chooses to work in a certain way that defies my intellectual reasons. There are times that he chooses to work in a way that I don't understand, a way 
that I might even be inclined to question. And it's in those moments, like those who opposed him that day, that I too demand some kind of explanation. Jesus, justify yourself. Explain yourself, Jesus. I demand Jesus to defend his actions, or at least explain his reasonings. But guess what? As in this day, so too in my own life, and I'm sure in yours, Jesus doesn't often feel inclined to defend himself to me either. Jesus will act the way that he wants to act. And why do we often not get an explanation? Well, it leads us to our second point. Because Jesus desires his followers to trust him. Jesus, give me a reason. Jesus, explain why. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not. So now you have a choice. Are you going to trust me? Or are you not? Are you going to trust that I know what I'm doing? Or are you going to claim to be more wise than God? Jesus defends his character, but he doesn't defend his actions because in the end, a fundamental component to following Jesus is one of the toughest pills to swallow. It's that word, trust. When it's all said and done, we have to filter every experience through the prism of Jesus' love. And we have to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. We should keep in mind his promise to work all things for the good, but then we should trust him with the results. Faith. Faith might be the mechanism that enables me to obey God when God leads a certain way, but trust is the mechanism that enables me to be at peace with the results of my obedience. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Jesus makes an interesting transition in these verses. He provided a rebuttal to the accusation, but now he's issuing a warning of his own. He provides a rebuttal, and now he's issuing a warning, and who is it aimed at? It's aimed at those who would accuse him, the religious leaders. These verses contain what many people have called the unpardonable sin. You heard of it? Sadly, by removing the context of Jesus' statement, this idea has created all kinds of unwarranted confusion. Don't forget the context. First, Jesus is addressing a group of religious Jews who had previously rejected the God of the Old Testament. They had rejected the God, of the, Old, the God of the Old Testament, the first person of the Trinity. The God at work in the Old Testament, they had rejected his revelation. God had judgment, judged them. They had returned to the land and had missed the point. God had been silent for 400 years as a result of their rejection of God, the Father's revelation. Point one, point two. From this very passage, it's clear that their blasphemous accusation, the one they had just levied at Jesus that, according to Mark, he has an unclean spirit, had revealed that they were now rejecting the Son. 
the second person of the Trinity. So this group of people Jesus is addressing has rejected God the Father. 400 years of silence, and then God sends them the Son to which they had rejected. And then this is Jesus' warning, his third point. Jesus is warning them that if their hardened heart continues with a rejection of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives, the third person of the Trinity, then they would have completely rejected the working of God, the Godhead, and their lives. God the Father, 400 years of silence, the Son, they had just rejected the Son. And Jesus is saying, you are very dangerously close to crossing a line you don't want to cross. The Holy Spirit's coming. And if you reject the working of the Holy Spirit, then what's the result? What's the result of rejecting God? Well, according to Mark here, according to Jesus, you'll find yourself beyond the forgiveness of God, and you'll find yourself subject to eternal condemnation. And is that actually unreasonable? I mean, I mean, really think about that for a moment. The two results to rejecting God is that one, God can't forgive you for rejecting him. And second, you're subject to eternal damnation, condemnation, hell. I mean, really, so, so many people want to attack God on the basis of the existence of hell. Let, let me issue this question. If you spend your entire life rejecting God, and then you die, and God's like, you've spent your whole life rejecting me, but now that you're in eternity, I have total control, you're going to have to hang out with me forever. Like, is that fair? Hey, you've rejected me, but now that you're in eternity, you're going to have to hang out with me. To me, I find that very unloving. I find that kind of cruel, actually. You see, the conclusion is, is that we falsely, I think, sometimes believe that people who've spent their life rejecting God when they die would want heaven. I think they want hell. They want eternal separation from God. They just want the consistent manifestation of the way that they've lived. You see, if I've lived my life in a relationship with Jesus, when I die, what do I want more than anything? As Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is more the very thing I've been living for, Christ. When I die, I want to spend eternity in the relationship with Jesus. I've spent my life here developing. But for someone that spent their life rejecting God, when they die, do they now magically want to hang out with God? No. Hell is actually, I think, the greatest manifestation of God's love because he allows us to choose to reject him. And he honors our choice, which to me is not cruel, but, but a gentleman. Understand the unpardonable sin is not like I say some magical bean word against the Holy Spirit and I'm damned for all eternity. I'm beyond the forgiveness of God. No. People teach falsely that the unpardonable sin is something that you can do, and in doing that thing, you've really messed yourself over forever. No, it's the rejection of God that will mess yourself up forever. And if you're alive right now, you don't have to reject the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, but you can respond and receive, and guess what? Not be subject to eternal condemnation, but instead find yourself in the forgiveness of God. Then his brothers and his mother came. And standing outside, they sent to Jesus, calling him. 
And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my mother, is my brother and my sister and, my, and mother. Now apparently, the reports of Jesus' bizarre behavior coupled with the attack ads being run on the local Galilean networks, had finally reached Jesus' immediate family. Maybe some of the rumblings of the growing opposition that Jesus was facing among the power brokers had also reached his family. Either way, something happened to spawn this intervention, regardless of their reasons. And you know, sometimes I think the family of Jesus gets, gets a bum rap. I don't think their motivation was evil. I think their motivation was probably sincere and heartfelt. They loved Jesus. His brothers loved him. His mom loved him. And they were coming out of, I think, a love of heart. But it was an ill-advised concern. They came to Jesus. And according to another gospel account, they pled with Jesus to return home to Nazareth to chill out. Now, aside from his mother Mary... We know from other places in Scripture that Jesus' family also consisted of several brothers and sisters. We have no mention of Joseph during Jesus' three-year ministry, leading most to conclude that Joseph died somewhere between Jesus' 12th and 30th birthdays. We also know historically that Jesus' siblings had significant doubts concerning his Messiahship. Two of his brothers, Jesus' half-brothers, James and Jude, they would become pillars in the early church. They would write two of the books in your Bible, but they would only convert after they had personally witnessed Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And, and you know, that's not unreasonable. For us, I think for us, it's not unreasonable that the most powerful manifestation of our conversion should also be an interaction with a resurrected Jesus. Now, though some have interpreted Jesus' response to his family here as being a little harsh, and when you kind of read through it, you, 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 I don't know, do you feel awkward? I feel a little awkward. You're kind of reading through this interaction, and they come in, and they're like, Jesus, your family's here. And he's kind of like, who's really my family? Who are my mother and my brother? And I can see like Mary and James and Jude kind of just standing over in the corner and be like, no, that's kind of us, like name tag. And like, like really awkward. Jesus is just totally skipping over his family. I feel awkward when I read it. I don't know why. But understand that what's happening here is that Jesus is taking the occasion to communicate a lesson very pertinent to the things he's just been discussing. And the presence of his family. And so his family shows up. And he, they're there. And so Jesus has an, a, an interesting moment. They come in. They say, look, your mother and your brothers, they're outside. They're seeking you. And Jesus says, he makes a point to his followers, a point concerning not his earthly family, but his heavenly family, the family of God. He says to them, whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now understand the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people considered themselves the people of God. 
They considered themselves, the Hebrews, everyone present, considered themselves part of the family of God. And in light of the interactions Jesus had just had with these religious leaders, and in lieu of their obvious doubt, Jesus is making something crystal clear to everyone, that the mark, the characteristic of being part of God's family had nothing to do with birthright. It had nothing to do with heritage. Being part of the family of God boiled down to one key characteristic, and that was obedience. My mother and my brothers are here. Yes, they're my mother and my brothers in the sense that it's heritage and it's birthright, it's blood, right? Well, we being Jews, we're part of the family of God because of our heritage and our birthright and the blood flowing through our veins. And Jesus is like, just in the same way that, my earth, that you are part of my family, not by birthright, not by heritage, not by the blood flowing through your veins, but by obedience to the will of God. These religious leaders, they think they're part of the family of God because they're Jews. But they're not because they've disobeyed. Because they've rejected God's revelation. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but before we conclude here, I do want to point out from our story here two fundamental problems with the Roman Catholic position of Mary that jump out from the text. First, if Jesus had physical, biological brothers and sisters, this passage seems to say that his family arrived. So if he had biological brothers and sisters, then how can you really believe in the Roman Catholic doctrine known as the perpetual virginity of Mary? Now, I hope I don't have to go into the explanation for how these things exactly work, the old birds and the bees. But if after Jesus, Mary had other kids that weren't given by God, but instead um, came from Joseph, then it's really hard for Mary to remain a virgin in the biological, even literal sense. So our passage seems to create a problem here. By the way, that doctrine was developed by the Roman Catholics during a period of history where people couldn't read for themselves. Secondly, if Mary is divine, as Roman Catholics believe, and thus worthy to receive our prayers, then her actions in our story also present a problem because they don't seem to be very godlike or consistent with divinity. She's basically coming to rebuke Jesus, telling him he needs to come home and stop doing what he's doing. Of all of the people, of, of everyone in Jesus' family that should not have who should not have doubted his divinity, his mission, or his purpose, it should have been Mary. Mary was the virgin who conceived. Mary was the one who had received a revelation from God through the angel Gabriel. It was Mary who had witnessed the miraculous circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth and his early childhood. It was Mary who had witnessed the manifestation of his sinless nature as he grew and matured in direct contrast to everyone else, his peers and his siblings. Mary had no excuse for not believing, and her actions in this story become inexplicable. Now, don't get me wrong. For those of you that might have background in Catholicism, Mary... Mary was a great woman. Blessed among women, Scripture tells us. Chosen to be the mother of Jesus. 
Mary, you could make the case, could very well have been the greatest woman. And in many ways, Protestants don't give Mary the credit that she deserves. Sometimes we downplay Mary in a way that's a bit inappropriate. However, passages like this one fly in direct opposition to some of the notions espoused by the Roman Catholics that elevate Mary into a position I think, frankly, Mary's in heaven a little embarrassed about. She's not divine. She's not to be prayed to. She didn't have a perpetual virginity. She was a great woman. A great woman that we should look at and learn valuable lessons from. But she's not on par with God. Let me recap. We looked at a lot this morning. First, if you have yet to make a definitive conclusion concerning Jesus this morning, if you've come this morning, please know, may I remind you that an honest and objective quest for truth will always result in the discovery of truth. But there, it has to be honest, and it has to be objective. If you allow your preconceived prejudices to taint this quest for truth concerning Jesus, you'll end up arriving not at the truth, but with more validity to your own preconceived prejudices. If you've yet to make a conclusion about Jesus, that's okay. But study and research to make a conclusion. Not one that supports your notions, but one that lands you at the truth. Secondly, if you're struggling with certain things that maybe have gone the wrong way or maybe a little awry in your life, don't forget that though Jesus very rarely explains his actions, he does desire you to trust him and he's there to help you through those situations. Faith might be the mechanism that enables me to obey God when God leads a certain way, but trust is the mechanism that enables me to be at peace with the results of my obedience. And then there's a warning. If you continue to reject God's work in your life, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then you will find yourself, Scripture's pretty blunt, in an unpardonable situation. If you find yourself beyond the forgiveness of God and subject to eternal condemnation, the only person you have to blame is yourself for the rejection of God's love. And finally, never forget the mark of a child of God. The main characteristic is not a person's birthright or what family you came from. It isn't your heritage. Whether you were born or raised in church or not, the mark of a follower of God is a person who obeys God, specifically his commands.